The following is a recording from Dr. Vern Steiner teaching at The Way, an adult education class detailing discovering and living the Catholic faith at St. Peter Catholic Church. Tonight's topic covered covenant to Christ, an overview of Genesis 12 through the culmination of all things in Christ's coming. May God bless you and enjoy. Chad kicked it off focusing on creation and corruption. Those are the terms we use for the first 11 chapters of Genesis, first 11 chapters of the Bible, where in the first two chapters we have the story of God's creating everything. And then in chapters 3 through 11, what happened to it? The corruption. We often refer to that as the fall. And I'm going to build on that this evening. I was joking with him last week as we wrapped up class. He had an hour to spend on 11 chapters. I have an hour to spend on the entire rest of the Old Testament. (laughs) And that is painful for someone with my background. So my training is in what we call biblical exegesis. Don't be impressed by the word. It just means that we get into biblical texts and dig carefully and deeply. And uh, I'm much more of a narrow go deep kind of a guy and it's really a challenge for me to go superficial breadth and uh, but I hope I'm up to the challenge and I hope you will uh, enjoy and uh, benefit from our attempt to cover the rest of the Old Testament let's pray together and then I'll talk about that funny looking image you have in your notes in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Heavenly Father, we invite and welcome your presence into this place this evening and ask that you will send your Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts, that we come to see things your way and live in your world the way you have designed uh, for us to live here. Thank you for your gracious call on our lives, calling us your children by adoption through your Son, calling us into your church. And Lord, wherever we find ourselves on that journey, I pray that um, what we do here this evening and in all subsequent uh, class sessions will be useful in your purposes for us and bring us ever closer to our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the great story of scripture, for how it begins, how it progresses, how it concludes, and for uh, inviting us to live in that story with you. Bless our time together this evening. May this be a community that's uh, characterized by love and uh, graciousness, a welcoming spirit, and a delight in the things that matter most to you. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I went online, (laughs) I did a little Google search, Old Testament image, 
And several popped up, and one that popped up is the one that's on your notes. And I noticed right away, Hebrew being my language that I love most, I noticed right away it's upside down. <laughs> and you might not notice that, but uh, it is actually upside down. It's a little portion of the book of Esther, by the way. Esther is chapter 7 and 8. And I thought, well, okay, maybe I can maneuver this thing and turn it right side up. And then I decided, nah, I'm just going to leave it as it is for two reasons. Number one, the Old Testament does speak to us in language that often seems really weird and unfamiliar. Great big names that nobody can pronounce and concepts that are hard to understand sometimes. And I thought, it's just fitting that we have an image here in Hebrew language. Uh, Hebrew is a wonderful, it's a beautiful language, and it's the language in which the Old Testament first comes to us. And um, it's filled with puns, all sorts of word plays that just give it dance and beauty and pleasure and reading, some of which is lost in English. And I want to be careful how I say this. Uh, moving from one language to another is a challenging thing. I, I grew up in a family where my dad was Swiss, my mom was Dutch, and they kind of had a language that they understood that we kids weren't supposed to understand and they could say words between them and once in a while we would ask so what does that word mean and i remember my parents just sort of shrugging because you can't put it into english not not all words in one language transfer conveniently into another language and so one of the reasons the old testament seems to be difficult to so many christians is because of a language issue now the meaning is basically there but uh, in English, but it's a little bit like watching a movie in black and white as opposed to watching it in color or listening to music on your iPhone or, or smartphone instead of on a, on a Bose system or some expensive. I heard of somebody who, who installed a $300,000 sound system in his home. <laughs> oh my word, I wonder what the music sounds like in that house. Uh, so my, here's my point. The message that's in the Hebrew Scriptures gets into English pretty well, but it doesn't always come with as much sharpness and beauty and flow and poetic flair as it does in Hebrew. So that was one reason I just left the picture there or put the picture there. Secondly, it's upside down. And I think often the Old Testament seems like it's upside down to, to us. You know, here's a God who sometimes seems pretty cruel. You know, go in and wipe out every man, woman, and child. And that just seems so upside down from us as Christians who understand Jesus to teach love. And so for, for those reasons, I thought, it's a pretty fitting image to start our class session. Um, it was in this room a couple years ago. This was the music room. Uh, where the choirs and musicians rehearse on Sunday mornings. It's now been converted into our meeting room here, and the musicians go downstairs. But I remember being in here waiting for the 9.30 Mass. My wife and I used to sing in the 9.30 choir. And, and a, one of our dear choir members came bursting through the door, and she was so frustrated. She said, I don't understand the Old Testament. Can someone please help me understand the Old Testament? because the mass readings were just confusing to her. And um, so I, as gently and humbly as I could, said, I, I think we can help with that. Let's, let's, let's work on that. 
Anyway, those are my introductory comments. We come to the introduction proper here. If you have a Bible near you, either your own or your neighbor's or anybody at your table, would you take it and open to Genesis chapter 12? So first book of the Bible, turn to chapter 12. Chad ended in this chapter last week. And then go about three-fourths of the way, all the way through the Bible. You'll see it up here in my Bible, about three-fourths of the way to the end of the Old Testament. So it would be the page right in front of Matthew, right in front of the first gospel in the New Testament. That's going to be Malachi in some of your Bibles, and in other Bibles it will be Second of Maccabees. And we won't go into the discussion on why it's different. But look at that. You know, sort of squeeze it between finger and thumb. And here's my question. What's in there? <laughs> What's that all about anyway? And, uh, and that's the topic I want us to tackle this evening. For many Christians, Catholic and non-Catholic alike, I think many feel lost in making sense of this part of the Bible. So if that's you, you're not alone. And um, uh, let's just work at getting more familiar and making sense. That's our objective tonight. 1.2, Jesus the Master Teacher, Luke 24. Blake referred to this passage briefly a couple of weeks ago. It's the story, this famous story of Jesus' encounter with two disciples who are walking from Jerusalem to uh, Emmaus, a journey of about seven miles. And Jesus catches up with these two disciples and engages in this conversation. It's a fascinating chapter, and there's some humor in there because Jesus plays innocent when he knows all along what's going on, but he just, just uh, plays uh, uh, innocent uh, with them. We won't read the whole chapter, but I have a few verses on your notes. Verses 25, 26, 27. And he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe. And then I put in brackets, literally, on the basis of all that the prophets spoke. He's not charging them with rejecting the Old Testament, not believing the Old Testament. He's charging them with, or he's, he's gently scolding them for not having come to trust in him on the basis of the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's sort of code language for the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them what referred to him in all the scriptures. And then... Uh, a little bit later in the same chapter, to the eleven and the others who had gathered with them in Jerusalem, he says, verses 44 through 48, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the first part of the Old Testament, and in the prophets, in, in the Hebrew Bible, that would be the second part of the Old Testament, and Psalms would be the first book of the third part of the Old Testament. So he's saying part one, part two, part three. All these parts of the Old Testament continuing must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That is the Old Testament. See, the New Testament didn't exist yet, hadn't been written yet. 
And he said to them, thus it is written in the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Three observations from these passages. From the Old Testament, Jesus expected his disciples to understand that A, the scriptures in all their parts have something to say about him. B, they should have come to believe in him on that basis. Once again, the New Testament doesn't exist yet. You should have come to believe in me on the basis of the scriptures you already had. And C, there to have understood their mission is to proclaim this message, this gospel to all the nations. Let me venture that that is not exactly what many of us get from our reading of the Old Testament or when we hear it read at, at Mass. And um, uh, many Christians, it seems, even question whether the Old Testament has any relevant message at all for them. So uh, we're not going to solve all the problems, but I do have uh, a focus for our session this evening. This is 1.3. I'd like to provide a broad overview of the Old Testament. There'll be several ways to go about this. This will be the way I will approach it in such a way that we all, uh, th that we see that it's all about Jesus, that we are to trust in him, and that we uh, are to understand that we've got a mission to fulfill. There's a message here that we need to live and proclaim. I also want to put a challenge to us tonight. And this might sound a little scary, but it's doable. I'd like to challenge you to memorize the names, the titles of all the books of the Bible. There are 73 of them in order. Now, many of you are already more than 10% there because you probably know the first five, many of you. Let's give it a try. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So I'm hearing a lot of voices, okay? New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's nine right there. That's about 12% of the 73 books. So just, just keep working on it. And um, uh, I, I think if, if I can... Uh, be successful even in some measure here this evening and if you will pursue that memorizing the books of the Bible in order I think I can pretty much promise a couple of things one the mass readings will begin to make a whole lot more sense with an enjoyment factor you wouldn't believe if I told you when you hear a reading from the prophet Isaiah, if you have memorized where Isaiah comes in the Old Testament, that reading will make a lot more sense to you. A reading from the book of Ruth, if you understand where Ruth comes in the Bible, that reading will make a whole lot more sense to you. So we can help ourselves. If the mass readings, especially the Old Testament part, seems a little foreign, unfamiliar, we can help ourselves with that problem. <coughs> and one of the ways to help ourselves is to become familiar 
with how the Bible is put together. And, uh, you know, with our background, of course, our children, uh, this is true of many, many Protestant uh, uh, assemblies uh, where they have children's classes and the children learn the books of the Bible in order at a very, very young age. You probably have been through this. And we can just rattle them off. And then we start pursuing the Catholic faith and we find seven more books in there that we didn't know were in the Bible. More on that in a moment. And so uh, if you all uh, listen well this evening and if you will take that challenge and have fun with it and just work with it, uh, you could probably go online and find songs that could help with the books of the Bible. I didn't learn them that way. But I think you will find the mass readings becoming more and more enjoyable and making a lot more sense. And uh, so that's, that's all my intro. Let's go to number two. Getting familiar with the Bible, how it's put together. Starting with 2.1, the Christian, and I'll put in parentheses, Catholic Bible, because it would look a little different if it was uh, a Protestant Bible. It would certainly look a little different if it were a Jewish Bible. But what you have there in the uh, uh, box, graphic, whatever you want to call it, is the layout of, of the whole Bible in its eight parts. So Old Testament on the left, New Testament on the right. The Old Testament is divided into these four parts, Pentateuch, there are five books there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I've given the standard abbreviations. This is the way you would see these books abbreviated in a lot of material. Sometimes they're written in full, but often abbreviated. These are the standard ones. Then comes a section we, we usually refer to as the history books or historical books, beginning with Joshua and uh, ending with Maccabees, perhaps. Again, Bibles vary a little bit on where they put Maccabees. This would be my own personal strong preference that Maccabees be put at the end of the historical books. And uh, that's the way this Bible does it. This is the ESV Catholic edition. Some other Bibles will put Maccabees right at the end of the Old Testament, as I said. Then comes the section, uh, we call Psalms and Wisdom Books, beginning with Job and ending with Sirach, seven books there. Then come the prophets in two parts, the major and the minor. Major because at least three or four of these books are long. Minor because all 12 of these are relatively short. It doesn't mean more important and less important. It's just a matter of relative length. Then the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. Then comes the book of Acts. Then come the letters of the New Testament, written to churches and to individuals. We'll say more about this next week. In two parts, the Pauline letters, that is credited to St. Paul, 13 of them. And then what we call Hebrews and the general are sometimes called the Catholic epistles, Catholic letters. There are eight of those, Hebrews through Jude. And then finally, I have APOC at the top, short for apocalypse. It's the Greek word meaning revelation. And, uh, and often it's called that, but we know it as the book of revelation. So those are the books. This will be on the quiz next week. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but get working at it. it it's, a, it's a challenge that, that I, I think you could do as a family. 
do as uh, married couples, uh, do it when you're out in your walks and bike rides and however you exercise. Uh, you know, photocopy this or, or have some other way of taking it with you. I, I used to do this when we became Catholic and started learning about Catholic prayers, which weren't part of our background. I started memorizing those prayers when I was out on my exercise, <laughs> my bike rides and so on. And I just uh, had great joy in doing that. I memorized the Nicene Creed when I was out on my walks. Uh, it, it's a wonderful thing uh, to do. And, and I, as I've said over and over now, I can assure you it will make those mass readings and your own reading in the Old Testament a lot more enjoyable and make a lot more sense. 2.2, why Catholic Bibles are bigger than Protestant, or we could just rephrase it, Protestant Bibles smaller than Catholic. At the end of your notes this evening, we're not going to go over this. I just put it there as a resource for you, pages five and six. I've condensed about a 60 or 70 page uh, chapter I've worked on for some publication someday, God willing, just into two pages, fairly small fonts, it's, it's kind of you know, dense, but a summary of that issue. And for some of you, that might be an issue, for others not. For me, it was a huge issue. Let me just provide, give you a little bit of the background. I, uh, I wrote my first paper a research paper on the canon that is the collection of books we refer to as the canon, C-A-N-O-N, -N, the canon of the Old Testament of the Bible, the books that the church recognizes as belonging in the Bible. Uh, I wrote my first research paper in 1976 on that topic, and it became a consuming interest of mine for years and years and years. And then as Providence would have it, in 1987, when I went back to school to do my doctoral work in Chicago, the Lord put me under the mentorship of a scholar who had majored on issues of the canon, and it was pretty widely known. He was a recognized figure in canon studies, and um, he's now deceased, he died of Parkinson's. He's about my age, just two years older than I been a wonderful tutor for me personally. He was a very, very knowledgeable person, a godly person. He had the entire Hebrew Bible memorized. <laughs> um, and he had a great impact. I did about half of my doctoral program under him. And so I was, I continued this, this study of the canon. And, and then I ended up teaching in Chicago and in British Columbia. And I continued teaching and I wrote some things on the canon. So with that background, you can understand why when I'm first introduced to this notion that the, that the Catholic Church has seven books in its Bible that we didn't have and that I never thought would, should or would be there as part of the Bible, it was almost a deal breaker for me. I mean, it took me, so, so some people struggle with what the Catholic Church teaches about Mary or about confession or about the saints or... Those were relatively minor struggles for me. The biggest struggle for me was, I'm 65 years old at the time, and I have fought the canon, was, was 66 books, not 73. And I've been taught by this world-class canon scholar, and then it began to dawn on me, and this is over several years of struggling, it began to dawn on me 
All my research on the biblical canon had been done in Protestant and Jewish literature. I had never taken the time to study the church's historical uh, view of this as, as believed and taught in the Catholic Church. So I had to start over again, or not over again, but open up another part of the library and read and study and work through these issues. So the little two page, pages five and six of your notes, is just a little summary of that issue and I hope it'll be helpful for anyone who struggles with it. Okay, let's get down to number three. We doing okay so far? All right, let's go. Rock and roll here. The great story, or we could say storyline of the Bible. 3.1, the great story summarized in one great big long sentence. <laughs> this also will be on the quiz next week, so be sure you've got this memorized. <laughs> Kidding, of course. The Bible begins with the story of creation, as Chad covered last week, which, having suffered corruption in the fall, so Genesis 1 through 11 up to that point, will be restored. Is this just amazing thought to me? God doesn't scrap the program. <laughs> I've got plans. And so he will be restored through God's covenant program. Don't worry if the word's unfamiliar. We'll define it after a bit. With specially called persons, notably three, Abraham, Moses, and David, and people, that is Israel, a program ultimately embodied and fulfilled in the redemptive mission of Christ, the incarnation of Israel's Messiah, who by the Holy Spirit continues his mission in the world through the incarnation of the church, the church being the body of Christ, physically, visibly alive and uh, uh, visible in the church, in the world and who by his own glorious return brings the cosmic spiritual drama played out on the stage of heaven and earth to a just and final consummation. We mean by that just wrapping it all up, bringing it to its rightful conclusion, culminating in restored creation in a perfected and everlasting kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. To date, that's my best attempt at just getting my mind wrapped around what's the storyline of the Bible. Once again, there'd be other ways to approach this. I'm not arguing that there's only, I'm just saying, this is my best attempt, and I'm rather fond of alliteration, so all the C's makes it easy to memorize, and, uh, but I don't think it's, uh, it's contrived or forced in any way. Then 3.2 takes the same uh, basic summary and just visualizes it in what we call a chiasm or a palistrophe, sometimes called a concentric pattern where there's correspondence between A and A prime, B and B prime, C and C prime, and it all centers at D. So I find this to be very, very helpful personally. Creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Down at the bottom, creation is restored, the last two chapters of the Bible. So the Bible begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible ends, now there was a new heavens and a new earth, and, 
And it's, it, it, there are probably 15 or 20 links between Revelation 21 and 22 and Genesis 1 and 22. The river over here and tree of life and all these things. It's so obvious that the story of Scripture begins with creation and it ends with a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Letter B, something terrible happened to that creation. It got corrupted by sin. And again, Chad covered this last week. But that's not going to have the last word. God will wrap things up, will deal with wickedness and, and, and all the things that corrupted creation. And the book of Revelation, at least in part, is the story of what God does to set things right, to, to undo the effects, shall we say, of the fall. So Revelation 1 through 20. Then let her see the rest of the Old Testament from Genesis 12 all the way to the end of Malachi, or if your Bible has Maccabees there, all the way to the end is this elaborate covenant program, which will be the focus of our uh, good part of the evening here shortly. And corresponding to that, so God's working this covenant program with Israel to bring the Messiah. And, and corresponding to that, God's working with the church uh, down at C Prime, and more on that next week. And all of this comes to its focal point in Christ, about whom the entire Bible uh, tells the story, but we meet him in the fullest, shall we say, uh, clearest um, way in terms of his birth, his life, his teaching, miracles, death, resurrection, and all in the Gospels. So I don't know if that's helpful. I hope it's really a way to view how the Bible is put together. And, and uh, this is just sort of painted across my mind. So when I hear a reading from the book of Jeremiah, I've got it right there. That, okay, this will be part of the big covenant plan of God. And, and once we get through what we're talking about, I think that will even make more sense. Okay, are we doing okay so far? Questions? You're fun. All right. 3.3. <laughs> Final introductory comment here uh, on this point. The great story provides a context for everything. This is Jesus' story. And because we belong to him, it's our story too. Seen in this light, our very lives are part of a divine drama sometimes called a theodrama, theos being the Greek word God, a God drama, played out on the stage of his story, history, his story, with the Bible as the script and the Lord as the director. To imagine or conceptualize life and everything in these terms as part of a story that begins in creation and culminates in new creation is to infuse it with profound meaning, significance, purpose, and potential. This is where real living happens. I often tell my students, the story of the Bible into which we have been brought makes every alternative story, the ones we find interesting and important, read like an IRS instruction booklet in comparison. This is real life. And and if, you, if you, you want to remember one point from this evening, remember that point. Real living is to find our place in the story of God that starts with creation 
and ends in new creation. And to find ourselves there living in sync with this drama that is centered in Jesus, that's real life. I mean, there's where meaning is found, purpose, significance, uh, mission, and all the rest. Okay, number four. The great story as it unfolds in the Old Testament, and I've got about 30 minutes to cover the absolute impossible, but I will quit moaning and groaning. And, uh, and here we go. So again, I've now said three or four times, last week, Chad covered creation, Genesis 1 and 2, corruption, 3 through 11. The rest of the Old Testament, we can summarize under this word covenant from Genesis 12 to Malachi 4. What are we talking about when we say God's covenant program? So I put this in a separate graphic for us. And let's just read across. It's in four parts. Part one, the Pentateuch. Those first five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This part of the Bible focuses on the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. The covenants God made with Abraham and with Moses. What's special about these? Well, the Abrahamic covenant outlines the provisions, the what and the Mosaic Covenant outlines the prescriptions, the how of God's covenant program. More on that down below. Part two, then come the historical books, Joshua through Maccabees. These books will focus on the Davidic covenant and the kingdom. We could say their focus is on the person, the who of God's covenant program. I mean, right at the heart of those historical books is this figure, David. But keep this in mind. God promises David a special son. And that son is going to reign on God's throne forever and ever. Eight times we're told that in 2 Samuel 7. More in a moment. Part three, the Psalms and wisdom books. At least the Psalms part here would be maybe the most familiar to many of God's people. These would be the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and so on, ending with Sirach. Sirach wasn't in my Bible for 65 years, and it's now one of my favorites. Here we have inspiration and instruction for life. in the. How do we live in God's world according to God's covenant intentions? How do we pray? And how do we agonize with the deep, issues and mysteries and trials and sufferings of life and and what guides us i taught a class last evening on marriage and family and we're up at proverbs right now we're just doing a sweep of scripture and what god says in in his holy word about marriage and family and we were in proverbs last night trying to learn what does it mean to be a wise husband a wise wife and uh, next week, we're off next week, the following week, what does it mean to be wise parents? These books of Proverbs and Sirach and uh, wisdom, these, these wisdom books give us great instruction on being wise, as we'll see momentarily. So I refer to this as the path of life in God's covenant program. And then part four of the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. <laughs> focusing on the new covenant and this awaited son king, because he hasn't come yet. That son of David we keep waiting for, <coughs> when's he gonna come? And, and the prophets keep us forward looking, anticipating the coming of Jesus. 
So we, we summarize it, the promise of God's covenant program. All right, 4.1 and following, it's all scripted for you. I'll make some brief comments. I really debated on this. I told my wife, I think I'm handing out too much heavy looking material tonight. It's really not so heavy. I, I wanted you to have it and, and you can review it and, and uh, you know, a once read through might, might you know, not quite, quite uh, get it all for us, but you can go back and review it and ask me anytime. I come every Thursday evening, never hesitate to ask questions. The message of the Bible, this is 4.1, centers in the revelation of the triune God, the Trinity. It's a big deal in Catholic understanding, as Chad emphasized last week. It was introduced in the story of creation, and that was a big part of the study last week, which 4.2 fell into corruption through human sin and rebellion, chapters 3 through 11. 4.3, the remainder of the Old Testament unveils God's response to this cosmic crisis in the form of a covenant program, asterisk. What do we mean by covenant? I said we define it. A covenant is a divine human bond predicated on God's faithful promises. God makes promises and man's willing obedience. God expects things, providing the framework by which God's program moves forward toward its goal. So when we use the word covenant and use that to kind of the overall concept of everything from Genesis 12 through the end of the Old Testament, we're talking about a program that's driven along by God's promises in relationship with his people and his expectations of those people to live up to, to their side of the covenant agreement, uh, which frames his restoration mission. In sum, the God of creation will redeem and restore the sin-corrupted world through a covenant program involving a certain people, Israel, from whom comes a specific person, the Messiah. That's it. That's the Old Testament. Right there. That's the whole story. Let's break it down. Part one, the Pentateuch. Genesis 12 through Deuteronomy 34. I mean, the Pentateuch would be with Genesis 1 and following, but I'm referring now to these, to the remainder of the Pentateuch. The Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12 through Exodus 18, especially features the Abrahamic covenant, outlines the provisions, the what of God's covenant program. What are we referring to? Well, God promises Abraham in the asterisk point there, a great nation, and a nation has land and people, a great name, you know, a dynasty and kingship, and blessing both for Abraham and universally for all the families of the world. So, Starting over, the Abrahamic covenant outlines the provisions of God's covenant program. And the Mosaic, sometimes called the Israelite covenant, delineates the prescriptions, the how for its fulfillment. What are we referring to here? The double asterisk, namely the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and then the other laws. So God's making a promise. Abraham, I, I, I want to give you, a, 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 make you a great nation and a great name and blessing to you and through you to all the nations of the world. Mosaic Covenant comes along and says, now for that to happen, here's how I, my people need to live. We're going to experience the blessings God intends. We've got to live according to God's rules. 
not ours, but God's. So the Ten Commandments, and then those are expanded upon uh, throughout, uh, all the way through Deuteronomy. Picking up at that point, the rest of the Old Testament tells the story of God's commitment to keeping his promises and the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of God's people in keeping theirs. Part two, the historical books, Joshua through Maccabees, focusing on the Davidic covenant and kingdom. The Davidic covenant identifies the person, the who, at the center of God's covenant plan and the kingdom associated with his everlasting dynasty. These so-called historical books do a lot more than simply recount a long stretch in the history of Israel in a kind of boring, factual narration of the events extending over the next 1,200 years or so. Rather, these books tell the story of how God's covenant promises come to focus on a special son, king, a son who will be a king by the name of David, who himself will have a son, notice the uppercase, who will be the king of Israel and of all the nations in a universal kingdom of God. This part of the unfolding story comes to its sharpest focus in the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. That's right at the heart of these books. Everything in the story leading up to that climactic passage points the way toward David, and everything following on from that passage recounts what becomes of David and his kingdom. I'm going to illustrate this after a bit. These books tell the story of Israel and the world, really of God's mission toward the cosmos in the key of David. In sum, the historical books will focus and clarify the essential message of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants by recounting how, as a consequence of their covenant violation, disobedience and rebellion, Israel forfeited the promised blessings incurred the judgment of God, and ended up in exile from the land that God had uh, determined to give them. But they also clarify how God's faithfulness to his inviolable covenant promises, God will never break his promises, will ultimately succeed through a Davidic son king yet to emerge by way of a remnant of Israel. That was a mouthful. But when we learn to read the Bible this way, then all those historical books become engaging reading. They're filled with suspense. Is God going to pull it off? Because his people are failing right and left. They've got some bad, bad kings. Some of the prophets are downright uh, you know, awful. And some of the priests are unfaithful. The wheels are coming off. And yet God's promised that through Abraham will come blessing to all the nations, blessing that will focus in a specific son of David. Is he ever going to come? And you keep reading the Old Testament story with anticipation. You turn every page. Is this where the Messiah is? No disappointment. So when you learn to read scripture that way and back to memorizing the books in order, then you see this unfolding story and it, it's, it's suspenseful, it's intriguing, it's engaging, and, and, and it's not boring. And uh, when I hear people say, oh, the Bible's so boring, I, 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 I respond saying, you know, the problem's with us as readers. It's not with God. God's never boring. We just aren't very good readers, and we just need to learn to do better. Hence, our session tonight. Part three, 
the Psalms and wisdom books. Oh my goodness. One of my favorite, favorite parts of scripture. Inspiration and instruction for life in the covenant. How do we live as God's people? These books describe and guide the path of life in the covenant, enabling God's people to live as God's covenant members in anticipation of the, fulfill, of the fulfillment of God's kingdom plans and purposes. The book of Psalms provides, we're all familiar with this, I'm sure, songs and prayers and guidance for life on the way, including its high mountaintops of praise, its low valleys of pain, and all its mysteries in the daily realities of life. That's Psalms, folks. There are psalms that just take you to the mountain peaks where you just shout the praises of God. Uh, God is so great and awesome and answers prayer and his love is marvelous and all the rest. And there are other psalms that take you right down into the pit. Psalm 13 is a classic. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemies triumph over me? This cry where some of us have lived and we cry out to God and wonder, where on earth are you right now? Because you seem so quiet, so silent, so absent, so distant. Psalms take us to those pearls up on the mountain peaks. We sing and shout and praise and dance all the way down into the pits, the valleys. Peaks and pits, Psalms. The so-called wisdom books highlight the importance of wisdom. What's wisdom in the wisdom books? It's being good or skilled at the craft of living in accordance with the way God designed life to be lived and the disastrous effects of folly. Folly would be just the opposite. It's refusing to be good or skilled at living the way God designed life to be lived. That's being a fool. A fool is one who says, I'll live in this world on my terms instead of God's. That's your classic fool. There are three levels of folly in the Old Testament. One level is somewhat just naive. And we're all there at some point. We just don't know better. We don't know how to live as God wants us to live. There's not great danger there. As I said, we all begin there unless we determine to stay there. Then that becomes sort of your first level of real folly. Second level is, well, I know what God says. I know what the church teaches. I know what the Lord expects. No thanks. No, I'm going to do it my way. That's being a fool. The third level is the most, uh, is the worst. It's a scoffer, the mocker, the person who says, I don't give a what God says, and mocks at those who do, and scoffs and hardens his fist in the face of God. Proverbs and all those books we call wisdom books teach us the other way, how to live in God's world, God's way, and so experience God's blessing. Dad, you had three words that you used, one for each of them. Something like, the first one is, meh. The second one is, nah. Yeah. And the third one is, ha. Yeah. Something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, and I don't, yeah, it's along those lines. Yeah, the first level is, is kind of the, huh? Huh? Hmm. 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 
Second level. No. Third level. And I don't, I don't speak this way normally. This is being recorded, so maybe I shouldn't. But <laughs> hell no. And, and I hope you understand. I, I don't use that language. I've just chosen not to use. But you get the point. And, and, uh, and, and scoffing then. That's your classic worst level fool. But, oh my, these books are so filled with the opposite. So I hope you fall in love with uh, Psalms if you aren't already in love with Psalms. And uh, especially uh, those wisdom books uh, uh, for guidance in life. They, they speak to all sorts of issues. How do I deal with relationships wisely, marriage wisely, raise children wisely? Um, how do I handle God's resources, money and things wisely, the way God wants me to? Uh, issues of morality, purity, holiness, issues of uh, respect for those in authority, dealing with anger, Dealing with relationships. I mean, there's nothing uncovered, especially in Proverbs and Sirach. The others have a little different function, but they're all teaching wisdom. And the foundation of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. No one becomes truly wise in this world who does not fear the Lord in the proper sense of submitting to God's authority and God's majesty. Until we come to the point where we say, God, you are creator and Lord. You've invited me to live in your world on your terms. Help me to do that. I submit my life to pursuing that path. Until we come there, we, we never become truly wise in God's measure of wisdom. So fall in love with these books. Spend much time there. I encourage you. We have part four yet, the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, focusing on the new covenant, the awaited son king, and the promise of the spirit. The prophetic books specify and amplify the promise of God's covenant program and its fulfillment. These books are based on the preaching of prophetic figures, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others, whose primary role was to minister the word of the Lord to the covenant people, during the days of the kings and the kingdom, from about the ninth century to the fifth, proclaiming the bad news of threatened judgment for unfaithfulness and the good news of promised blessing for faithfulness on the part of God's covenant people. Chad and I just taught a, an Emmaus course at our institute last spring covering all the prophets, and these were the, broadly speaking, twofold themes, the threatened judgment for unfaithfulness and the good news of promised blessing for faithfulness. The historical and prophetic books of the Old Testament overlap. They cover much of the same historical territory. The former, the historical books, telling the covenant story in the dominant genre of historical narrative prose, storytelling literature. The latter, the prophets, driving home the message more explicitly in the dominant genre of prophetic poetic oracle. They're preachy. They're very preachy. So if you read the story of, 
First uh, and Second Samuel, you're reading a narrative, an unfolding story, and it's very engaging, as I said. If you read Isaiah or Jeremiah, you're reading, in, in more poetic lines, a, a preaching, a hammering home of the message. And, and generally speaking, that's how the historical books and the prophets uh, compare. In this way, the prophets fulfill a twofold purpose in the overall story from creation to new creation. One, they explain why ancient Israel failed to enjoy the blessings, the provisions of God's covenant program, incurred the divine judgment, and ended up in exile from the land of promise. They explain why that happened. They explain why it is so serious that we live God's way and, and we listen up. And two, they declare that those blessings, provisions will yet be realized through a certain divine Davidic son, king, still to come by way of a remnant of restored Israel. The Messiah will embody God's ideals for Israel through his righteous rule and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as promised in the new covenant, especially Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. He will enable God's people to keep the covenant conditions with the blessings of salvation made available to all the families of the earth, quoting Genesis 12. Whew, there's the Old Testament. <laughs> Once again, I've said before, I'm well aware there are other approaches to this, and uh, I'm, I'm familiar with other approaches. Uh, this is uh, my preferred way of looking at it partly because it just takes the Bible in the order in which it comes to us and tries to make sense of why the, the Jewish community and ultimately the church bound the books together in this way. Um, and and I, I think that um, you, know, you could scramble them and try to place them in a more chronological way where this prophet falls historically relative to this part of the book of Kings, for example. My opinion, that's uh, 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 a, a way a Western, a modern Westerner might like the Bible to be, but it's not the way the Bible's come to us. And what I encourage people to do is, is memorize those books in order and then over a lifetime, what's the hurry, right? Over a lifetime, be good listeners at Mass and be as faithful as you can in reading Scripture and taking opportunities to learn the Bible. <clears throat> Shameless plug, Emmaus Institute. And uh, over a lifetime, over a lifetime, it, it all will make wonderful sense and you'll see the unfolding in those four parts, broadly speaking, Pentateuch, historical books, Psalms and wisdom, the prophets, and you'll see a thematic progression leading up to Christ, the New Testament, which is where we begin next week. And next week, Chad and I will team up. I'll take the first part and just kind of do an overview of the Gospels and the Acts and the letters of the New Testament, probably more familiar territory to most of us, and then Chad will spend some time on how the Bible concludes, the book of Revelation, and especially the new heavens and the new earth to which we all look, look forward. Um, it's 8 o'clock. When am I supposed to stop? I was going to illustrate everything I taught tonight, but this is more important, I guess, just to have the discussion. whole raft of illustrations at the end where I was going to just show how the Old Testament story unfolds, looking forward to Jesus and is actually his story. Let me just end with one.
Oh, but which one? Second <laughs> Samuel seven. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Second Samuel seven. The prophet comes to David and says, "David, I'm paraphrasing, of course. You're going to have a son, and he's going to reign on my throne forever." And eight times in that chapter, you have the word "forever." forever, forever. So as a reader, you turn to chapter 8. Is he there yet? Nope. Chapter 9, still here yet? Nope. Chapter 10, you know. You keep waiting and waiting. Who is the son of David who will reign on God's throne forever? And you keep on reading your way through the scriptures, and one day your eyes land on the very first verse of the New Testament, where it begins, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, watch this, son of David, son of Abraham. It's even out of, <clears throat> it's out of sequence. Abraham came long before David. But the gospel writer puts son of David first. So that as our eyes fall on the genealogy of Jesus with all those names in Matthew 1, we're thinking, this is the fulfillment of what I read back here. And uh, boy, that makes Bible reading fun <laughs> to, to read that way. And uh, to, you know, just to follow the ebb and flow, the ups and downs, the failures and successes, and all the rest that God's people went through. And sometimes you wonder, good Lord, will you bring it to pass? Book of Esther, for example, had Haman, that jerk in the book of Esther, had his way. He would have exterminated the Jews from the planet. And he has access to the king. And he's going to approach the king basically asking for the lives of all the Jews. Will the Messiah ever come? If he gets his way, no. And Esther intervenes. <sighs> you know? Oh, my goodness. Uh, we could just go on and on. It's so much fun. I hope, I hope you're encouraged tonight to be better listeners at Mass. <clears throat> Love the story of Scripture. It's all about Jesus, our Lord. And the more we get to know Scripture the more we come to know and love Jesus. And that's, uh, that's the goal of the whole thing here tonight. So thank you, you're so attentive. Um, it's a pleasure being together. And uh, we'll continue on next week into the New Testament. Let me just pause here. Has this made any sense to you? <laughs> I, I see a few nods. Helpful and all. Uh, it's, it's, it's an approach that I hope you will return to. And again, I really invite questions. I, I love questions. Um, if I can be helpful. I, I teach, uh, and I just put it in writing recently as well. The goal in life is not to master the Bible. No one ever does anyway. The, the goal in life is to be mastered by the Lord. And um, we never become experts in the Bible. I'm not 72. I've studied scripture since I was a teenager. Um, bunch of degrees, taught a lot. Man, the more I learn, the more I see there is to learn. <laughs> you know, The more you know of God, the bigger God becomes. Mm -hmm. 
And, and the more you love God, the, the, the more you see there is to love and, and all the rest. You, you, you get the drift here. And so, you know, don't view me as a master. I'm no master. I'm a humble student of, of God's word. I'm just uh, privileged to uh, have spent so many years um, studying, trying to learn, trying to be faithful. And um, this is my humble offering tonight. So take it and use it. I'd like to illustrate for a few minutes. Yeah, Father. Bert, um, what is your favorite uh, commentary, or what would be the recommendation for a commentary or a concordance? And can you explain what a commentary and concordance sure. is? Sure. A commentary is a book, usually a book, could be a series of books, written by an author or multiple authors about the Bible. So I haven't published any commentaries. I've taught a lot of courses that are like commentaries, and they're in note form in my computer, probably tens of thousands of pages, and I'm not bragging. It's just that's a lifetime of work. Um, but what you would see would be uh, like Genesis 1.1, and then comments that explain that verse. Verse 2, comments that explain that verse. That's, that's a commentary. Sometimes commentaries take big, big chunks of scripture. So instead of commenting on each verse of the Bible, they'll comment on a whole chapter or a paragraph or whatever. So commentaries can vary in length from very thin to multiple. You know, get three, three volumes on one book, for example, of the Bible. So that's a commentary. They vary in terms of quality. Uh, they vary in terms of or, or, uh, orientation. Um, you know, you have a Protestant commentator who sees these passages and understands them this way and explains them this way. A Catholic commentator might see things a little differently and explain it differently. Um, commentaries are not inspired. They aren't the final word on any given passage. But they can be helpful tools. If you came to my home, you would see a sizable library. I have thousands of volumes. And many of them are commentaries. I might have this many, a row this large on the book of Psalms. I treat them as people. So one of my favorite commentators on the book of Psalms would be a fellow by the name of um, John Goldengate. And he has three volumes on Psalms. When I pull a volume off to engage with Golden Gay on how he understands Psalm uh, 23, Shepherd's Psalm, I don't take his word as the final word. I take him as a conversation partner. It's like he's sitting across the table. I'm sitting here. We have the Bible open. I understand it this way. He understands it that way. We have a conversation about it. I interact with why he sees it that way. Maybe I hit it with a few challenging, you know, the way I see it and why I do. And, and it, but it makes me a better student of Scripture. That's the best use of a commentary. Not, this is the final word, this is inspired, this author's right, and so on. So that's commentaries, and we can talk, I think I have an article I could give you as well on commentaries. The best is hard, Father. I don't know about best, but I would say for us in this room, for priests, I would say this isn't a commentary, it's an annotated Bible, meaning at the bottom of the Bible pages will be some comments. I would encourage, if you don't already own it, 
to pick up a copy of the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible. It's available at Gloria Deo, and you can get it elsewhere. It's bound only for the New Testament at this point. The Old Testament's coming out book by book. I would say at this point, I think I have maybe a third of the Old Testament books. It's in a larger 8.5 by 11 format. And eventually, I think at the end of 2023 or so, they're projecting that the Old Testament will be completed as well. So if you wanted to study Genesis, that one's available. And you could pick it up for just a few bucks at Gloria Deo. But, but not all the Old Testament books are available. The New Testament is. I didn't bring it with me. It's a separate volume, a little bigger than this. And it's very, very helpful. It's not detailed, but it has a little page or two or three introduction to each book of the New Testament, an outline, how that book is put together, and then some comments at the bottom of the page. And, and I love it. It's wonderfully done. And uh, I would encourage you, you to pick that up. Uh, as for uh, commentaries, we have a sac uh, commentary on sacred <laughs> scripture, Catholic commentary on sacred scripture, CCSS, completed in the New Testament by a, a variety of Catholic uh, authors, male and female. Mary Healy, for example, wonderful, uh, uh, Ed Shree uh, and Scott Hahn and, and others have contributed to it. It's probably our best Catholic commentary for, uh, that's accessible. Uh, I have some Catholic commentaries, Fitzgerald, F F uh, yes, Fitzgerald and others that are really, really detailed. You probably don't want those. But the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture, all volumes together would be maybe this many. I forget how many. But, um, but it's quite wonderful. And I, I think every priest should have that in his library. Put it on your Christmas wish list. <laughs> a concordance, Father asked. A concordance is a, a, a volume that gives you the references in the Bible, the scripture references, where a particular word occurs. So you want to do a study on the word love in the Bible. You just go to the L section of the concordance, love, and it will give you, if it's a complete concordance, or sometimes called an exhaustive concordance, it'll give you every scripture verse in the entire Bible where the word love occurs. Okay, does that make sense? Or the word um, uh, wife, or husband, or covenant, or faith, or joy, or peace. Or you can just look up words. When our daughter, she became a nurse eventually, in her teen years, she wanted to just continue growing in her Christian life. And she wanted to become a compassionate nurse. And one time I walked into her bedroom, the door was open and her back was to the door. And I walked in and looked over her shoulder and she had her Bible and a concordance and a, and a notepad. And I asked, what are you doing, Carrie? She said, I'm looking up all the verses in the Bible that use the word compassion. And she was just doing her own little Bible reflection, meditation, devotional study on compassion in the Bible. That's using a concordance. Does that make sense? There's one available for the RSV Second Catholic Edition. Uh, I forget 
who, who put it together, but I know it's available. I can give you the, uh, the information if you'd like to purchase one. In my teaching career, I've encouraged people who are serious about growing in the scriptures to have, in addition to a Bible, a good Bible dictionary. The best one out there is Catholic Bible Dictionary, CBD. Um, best in, in our context. It's compiled by Scott Hahn. Uh, he didn't write everything in it, but he's the compiler of it. And uh, it probably sells, it's probably a little pricey, maybe 30 bucks or something, but it is worth every, every dollar. And, and it's a dictionary. So now you look up the word covenant and you'll probably get a page or two or three discussion about covenant. So it's not like a, a, a Merriam-Webster's you know, dictionary where you just get a little gloss for each word. It's, it's more expansive than that. You look up Jesus or Christ and you'll probably get pages of discussion. Um, a good Bible dictionary. And then I also encourage people to get a concordance just because I'm really, uh, I, I'm a, a <laughs> I'm a nerd. I, I just think it is so, it's intriguing, you know, to take the word mercy and just look up every place in the Bible where it talks about mercy. It's, it's fun. And, and if you're not in a hurry, you can do it over, you know, several days or weeks or whatever works well. I think Sunday, the Lord's Day, is a precious time to spend a little extra time in the Bible. Uh, you know, you could set a goal. I'm going to memorize the books of the Bible. <laughs> I'm going to get a concordance, and I'm going to start looking up words that I find especially meaningful and, uh, and just look them up in the Bible and enjoy. Yes, Karen. I have a question. Yes. So, like, there's many versions, yeah. um, like, non-Catholic Bibles, like there's King James, yes. there's different versions. What would be, and maybe you talked about this, but I didn't. No, that's fine. For the Catholic Bible, yeah. what you spoke about um, in our... Sure, okay. F yeah. There, there are three in particular that I would recommend. In no particular order, just let me comment on them. The one that will be familiar from our mass readings, the, the one that's used in the lections, will be the New American Bible, abbreviation NAB. Is it in the revised edition now? Is that the one we use? Mm -hmm. Yes, okay, so NAB. RE, Revised Edition. The New American Bible is a what we would call an idiomatic translation, a dynamic translation. Let me come back to that. The other two are almost identical, and either of them is, you know, one's about as good as the other. The RSV Second Catholic Edition. RSVCE2, or wherever the two goes, RSV, Second Catholic Edition. That's the one that until recently, at least, would be the preferred Bible in Bible studies uh, at an academic level. Not because it's hard to read, but because it's a little more literal, a little more formal in its translation. I want to come back to that comment. The other one that's almost like, that's very similar to the RSV, 
60% of which is identical to the RSV, is the English Standard Version Catholic Edition, ESVCE. It also is a formal equivalence, by which we mean a fairly literal word for word. It's just updated a little bit from the RSV with a few improvements. In our classes at Emmaus, we recommend this, ESV or the RSV, Second Catholic Edition. Okay, so I've used a couple of expressions. It goes like this. When you go from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, the three original languages in which the Bible's written, into English, how do you get there? Do you go word for word? Take a Hebrew word, put it into an English word. A Greek word, put it into an equivalent English word. And just go as rigidly literal as possible. That's called a formal equivalence. Where the modern language, we call it the receptor language, the target language, English, it tries to render as closely as possible exactly what those Hebrew and Greek originals were saying. The problem with that is it becomes kind of stiff, formal, not so smooth. Now, I have to qualify that in a second. On the other side is what we call dynamic equivalence. So a Hebrew reader reads this text and understands it this way with all of its life and poetic beauty and flair. Let's put all of that into English and make it smooth and you know, idiomatic, modern English. The New American Bible attempts to do that a bit more. The RSV, Second Catholic Edition, and ESV Catholic Edition tend to do the former, a little bit closer to the literal rendering. So in academia or in serious Bible studies, we encourage the latter two, RSV, Second Catholic, or ESV. For, for many people, I recommend both. Why not? Uh, if you can afford, have one of each. So when you get serious about studying you know, Luke 1 and the uh, Annunciation to Mary, you might want to read that in an RSV, Second Catholic Edition, or ESV, Catholic Edition, and then also read it in the, in the New American Bible, and, and just compare, and you'll pick up insights and little, little nuances of things, and that's a, that's a fun thing to do, compare. Does that help? Yes, thank you very much. Yeah. That does help. And Gloria Deo, tell them I sent you. No, no. <laughs> now, we try to shuffle off as much business to them as we can. You know, they're local, and I mean, Amazon's always out there, but hey, if you're buying Christian books, let's patronize our faithful Gloria Deo as much as you can. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and at our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.